Well, good morning again as they make their way down. I encourage you to find your way to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you again this morning to the Coffee Bible Church and to open God's Word with you. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation is a good word describing an amazing, incredible thing. The establishment of peace between parties that were at war and the restoration of relationships that had been fractured. And if you look around our world, uh, wherever you look, what you will see is a world crying out in deep need of reconciliation. Husbands and wives across the globe every year get divorced because of what are called irreconcilable differences, the inability to achieve reconciliation. They cannot live in peace with one another. Family gatherings like Thanksgiving and Christmas are often fun, but in a lot of places they're somewhat fraught affairs because even family members struggle sometimes to have a peaceful meal and celebration with people who are not fully reconciled one to another. Some of us have people who used to be their friends or even members of their families with whom they have not spoken in years or maybe even decades. Why? Because we need to be reconciled and we are either unwilling to be reconciled or we are unsure how to begin, or how to get there. And if you look around the world, you'll see broken relationships everywhere. And not just between individual people, but also between various groups and ethnicities in every nation and between nations themselves. People in the same society and peoples across the globe struggle to be reconciled. Our solution to this, no matter what nation we belong to, tends to be not moving toward reconciliation, but towards warfare and towards peace imposed at the edge of the sword. And this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, this is as old as human beings. It's the default setting of humanity since our earliest days. In fact, the musician Bono, the lead singer for U2, said the, that maintaining peace is the hardest thing in the world. The most natural thing in the world is for the band to break up, for the family to be split for the nation to be divided, for peoples to be at war. And I think he's exactly right. In fact, as we look at the scripture, what we see is that all this conflict between people and, and between groups of people began in humanity's fall into sin in the garden, and it continues down to this very day. And we also see that all of this conflict between people is based in our lack of reconciliation with God, which we desperately, desperately need. 
Because apart from being reconciled to him, apart from having a relationship with him that is fixed, all of our other relationships spin out of control as a side effect of that. As long as our human nature, and we are born this way, our human nature is born hostile towards God and actively engaged in rebellious warfare against him. And as long as that continues, we will continue to have difficulty with reconciliation with one another. So we want to look at this important topic of reconciliation from the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles... Uh, turn with me uh, to beginning in verse 21. We're going to look at just three verses today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, 22, and 23. I'll read them. If you don't have a Bible in a good modern translation and you want one, send a message to Chillicothe Bible Church through our Facebook page or leave a comment on this video and we will do whatever is necessary to get a Bible into your hands. We, we think that one of the most important things that you could possess and read and use would be a Bible that you can read and understand of your very own. So if you don't have that, send us a message, uh, leave us a comment on the video, and we will get you one at our earliest opportunity. We'll do whatever we have to do to make that happen. But if you have your Bible, I want you to read with me verses 21 to 23. First of uh, Colossians, uh, first chapter, uh, beginning of verse 21, this is what the Word of God says. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if you look, if you look back earlier in the chapter, a couple of verses, uh, I want to give you some context for what this passage is all about. If you look, beginning in verses. Uh, verse 15 down through verse 20, what you'll see is that Jesus is supreme over everything in creation. A good parallel passage to this is Hebrews chapter 1, where very similar language gets used, that Jesus is the maker of all things, that he is the ruler of all things, that he is the chief heir over all things because he is the only begotten Son of God, and the Father owns all things, and all things that the Father owns therefore belong to the Son as the chief heir of all things in all of creation. And you will also see that he is the ruler of both things that are visible and things that are invisible, uh, things that we see with our eyes and things that we don't. Uh, whether you're talking about the atomic realm or when he's talking rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, uh, these things are all references to levels in the angelic realm that Jesus is Lord over those things and that he is Lord also over the church, which is his body that he brings into existence through faith in his death and resurrection. The church is formed and Jesus is Lord over that. So the idea in these verses is that Jesus is Lord over the original creation in all of its its magnitude and 
and all of its uh, minuscule aspects, all of the things you can see, all of the things you can't. There is not one thing in creation of which Jesus is not Lord and preeminent. He is Lord over the old creation, and he is Lord also over the new creation, which is being formed through the church in the world. And he will continue to be Lord over the new creation when he comes and when he reveals himself to people, all of these things, Jesus is the ruler and the maker of. Now, with that in mind, we need to see verse 21, which tells us who we were apart from Jesus, what our lives were like before we knew him. And if you look, what you see is this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. In other words, your attitudes and your thoughts were bent on rebellion against God. Yours and mine. We all come hardwired. It is our factory default setting as we come into the world since the, the sin of Adam and Eve in the, in the old creation that God made. He made it perfect. They messed it up by their sin in following the serpent. And since then, all of their posterity have been born hostile to God, alienated from him. And because of that, whatever he declares to be righteous and good and, uh, and right for us to do, we are in conflict with that, and wherever we find ourselves in conflict, we reject what God says. And you can see that in decisions that we make wherever people are found. Whatever truth that He revealed that we disagreed with, or thought that was not logical, or wasn't up to date, or that we consider to be hard, or that we consider to be unrealistic. I mean, come, come on, God, you should get with the times. All of those things are things we set ourselves against because we are alienated from him and our minds are hostile to him and we willingly separate our thinking from his. Rather than bending our thinking to suit his, we think in our rebellion and in our hostility to him that he should bend his thinking to us. And we also spent time, it was not just an, a mental thing or an emotional thing or an attitudinal thing. It was also an active thing. It says we also were doing evil deeds. Our hostility and alienation from God, in other words, expressed itself in how we behave, how we act, the things that we do. We live it out with our bodies. And, and so we do whatever sins appeal to our flesh. And so we engage in lying and lust and fornication and theft and cheating and hatred and pride and murder and rebellion against our parents and adultery and coveting and boasting and idolatry and greed and self-righteousness and materialism and atheism and power worship and feeding various addictions and a much longer list of things 
like these. We love them all. And we might not be guilty of every single one of them because our particular sinful bents we find differ from person to person. But every one of us is guilty of at least one and most likely more than one, at least at times. And probably many of them. And the point is that both our minds and our actions were so corrupted by our sin nature that we became God's enemies. We were hostile to him. We were at war with him. We were in rebellion against him. But what I love about this verse are two little words. You need to underline them in your Bible. If you have a, a pen, you ought to underline these two words. The word once and the word were. These are two words that indicate that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these are your past. They are not your present reality. They are what we were. And they no longer define us and characterize us anymore. They are in the past. And if you want to know the reason why, you can look at verse 22, which tells us that Jesus Christ has established for us peace with God. In fact, look at the verse again with me. Uh, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Every single word in that sentence is important. Every word proclaims to us the massive transition that there is between being a sinner separated from God and being a Christian being a person who has experienced the new birth, who has come into new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and you've got to look at it closely because this is earth-shaking in its importance for every one of us. It says, look at, the, look at the words here. He has now reconciled. tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, that our present now is starkly different from our past. And the second thing it tells us that the change has already happened. You may not be a grammarian, but here's something grammar related that you need to understand. That this is in what is called the Greek perfect tense. You need to know that, but you do need to know this that it designates something which is a completed past action. In other words, to be a little ungrammatical about it, God has already done reconciled us. He has finished reconciling us. We are already completely at peace with God. We have... We have received already, it's already finished. All the reconciling that God needs to do is already done. 
It has already happened. Paul is not saying, in other words, that someday when you stand before God in heaven, well, then you will be reconciled to God. No, he's saying you already are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are already reconciled. Peace has already been established. You have in your possession right now, in other words, a new relationship with God because he, through the blood of his son, has made peace with us. And, and this is exciting because you, you want to know how God did it? He did not do it in the, in the normal way that we see peace established after, uh, you know, in our world, we normally see peace established after a war. And, and who gets to dictate the terms? The winner. Well, God in his sovereignty and his omnipotent power could easily crush us and establish peace with us that way. But he didn't do it that way. If you, if you want a historical example, uh, King Louis XIV, I read this week, had the Latin words ultima ratio regem engraved on all of his Canons. If you're not a Latin scholar, what that means is the last argument of kings. In other words, if you can't get along with me and bow down to me as your king, then you will deal with my artillery and that will solve my argument with you. That's what he's saying. But that isn't what God did when he wanted to establish peace. Not through the death of of his enemies, but through the death of his only begotten eternal son, Jesus Christ. And according to the text, through the body of flesh that the son took on in order that he might die for what we did in rebellion against him. By the way, has anybody ever established peace that way? I tell you what. Uh, you're at war with me. I will lay down my life for you, my enemy, that we might be at peace. No, that's not what we do. You know, as George Patton said, you know, you're not a hero when you die for your country. You're, you're a hero when you make the other guy die for his country. But when God wanted to make peace, he himself took his sin, took our sin on his shoulders and laid down his life, not for what he did, but for what we did, that he might establish peace. He paid the king, paid the penalty for the crimes of the rebellious peasant. And he made peace with us. Now look at the last phrase, verse 22. This is also glorious. It says, it begins with, in order to... Whenever you see that in your Bible, in order to, it's giving you a reason. It's giving you a purpose, a result uh, of what God is doing. What was God's purpose? So that we could be made holy and blameless and above, and above reproach before him. If you look at those words, holy and blameless, they are parallel. In fact, they're the same words that are used uh, if you translate your Old Testament into Greek. These are the words that you would use to describe the Levitical sacrifice, which had to, be, uh, had to be spotless and without blemish. 
When you offered your lamb at the temple, it had to be an acceptable sacrifice. It had to be a perfect lamb. It had to have no flaws. And in other words, what God is doing is making peace with us so that he could transform us. So that he could make us into something different than what we were before. That instead of being hostile and alienated from him and doing evil deeds, he would make us an acceptable sacrifice in his sight that we would be able to enter into his presence. That just like the lamb in order to come into his presence had to be perfect, so we, the sheep of his pasture, are made perfect that we can come and dwell in his presence. We are holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, that we are made completely like Jesus. He had to make peace with us through the blood of the Son so that we could dwell with him in his presence in the new creation that he is making. God, in other words, does all the work that is needed to bring us all the way safely Every bit of it. God is working in us in order to rid us of sin so that we can dwell in eternity safely with him. God's grace conquers our sinfulness from beginning to end. That's verse 22. But there is a condition And it's a real one, and it's important, and we need to look at it in verse 23. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word if, there at the beginning, presents you with a real condition, but one which Paul thinks that all the Colossians will indeed meet, that if they continue to embrace the faith in the gospel message which they heard and believed, then they will receive all of these things. There's only one gospel message that saves. Only one. And it is the message of Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, who became, in a moment in history, also fully human. So that he might die for our sins and be raised from the dead to give eternal life to all who believe in him. If you want to be reconciled to God, you have to embrace and hold on to that message. You need to persevere, according to verse 23, in the faith, in in that message, and that message alone, in order to be saved. There's no salvation for anybody who embraces a different Messiah. There's no salvation for anybody who embraces a different version of Jesus than the one that is presented in the Bible. There's no salvation through a different a message about Jesus. And some people like that one. They, you know, you see it sometimes in, in different churches across America or even, well, I would call them so-called churches where they proclaim a version of Jesus where he is a good example and a good teacher, but he is not the eternal son of God come in the flesh. 
There's salvation in no one else and in no other message. It is through this message about this Jesus that saves. And in the same way, there's no salvation for those who say that they believe for a moment or for a period of time and then walk away from Christ. People who do that reveal themselves to have, and this is a consistent New Testament testimony, that if you walk away from Jesus, what you reveal yourself to be is someone who had a profession of faith without possession of the real thing. It's like people who say that they are cowboys, but whose primary claim to the title is that they once owned a cowboy hat. They are, to quote the Texas expression, all hat and no cattle. They are not saved. They are not Christians. And men and women, if you are a person who has at one time made a profession of faith in Jesus, but there was no transformation, there was no change in your life, there was no growth that followed that profession, then may I encourage you to put real trust in Jesus, that you might experience the salvation that is promised you, because it is free and available for the taking. But it does require a complete commitment, a real belief in Jesus to experience and enjoy. The kind of belief that lasts and endures over time. Do people who abandon their former faith, are they Christians? No. Were they Christians who lost their salvation? No. There are people who claimed to be Christians, but whose claim was proven false by the decisions they made later in their life. What they had was not faith, it was empty words. Now let me clarify something. Why does Paul include verse 23? Verse 23 is a bummer, amen? We would like it not to be there in some ways. But he includes it because there are people in Colossae who are proclaiming a different so-called gospel about a different kind of Jesus, one who either isn't fully God or isn't fully human. There are others saying that rules and asceticism save you. That if you just do enough good things, that surely God will look with favor upon your life. Or that it's Jesus plus... Being an ascetic, putting on a hair shirt and avoiding certain foods and so forth. And Paul is making it clear that that gospel, whatever you call it, is not the one that saves people. And it's vitally important that they understand that and that we understand that. That the true gospel, the one that really does save from sin, the one that really does bring reconciliation and peace with God, is this one. That God made human beings perfect. That they fell into sin through their own choice. And 
And that having passed on a sin nature to all their posterity, all of their posterity are born hostile to God and alienated from him. But because God loved them, he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross in their place, bearing their penalty for their sin. And he also then raised him from the dead so that he might prove that the penalty of sin was paid and that those who believe in him might experience through his same resurrection power, the same new life that Jesus, the son of God, enjoys for all eternity and that they might be with him. And that Jesus, having saved people from sin, is, has done that in order to transform them, to make them holy and to fit them for heaven where they will live with him forever. That's a very expansive way of saying it. But the gospel is just a few words, if you want to summarize it. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. And if you embrace that and believe that and follow Jesus, because of that, you are reconciled with God now and forever. And that can never be taken away from you. You are a member of God's family. But this verse is here, verse 23, to ensure that everybody take a moment for a little bit of a gut check. And ensure that your faith is real so that all of the blessings and joy and eternal life that is available to you is what you in fact experience. Because one of the worst things in the world must be to think that you were a Christian and come to the end of your life, stand before God and realize that you never actually were. And that you are still alienated from God. And no faith in Jesus Christ can come into a state of reconciliation with God and be transformed by his grace. The book of Acts tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And real love for people compels us to both Encourage them with the truth and to warn them away from the danger of believing a lie. To warn them away from the danger. So, let's consider carefully now how these verses apply to us. Number one, as you read these verses, where are you in the text? I am not naive enough to believe that there are not some of us for whom verse 22 is our present reality and accurately describes us. Some of us are, even though we're watching a video of a church service, are still alienated and hostile in mind toward God and still doing evil deeds. Some of us may be living our lives right there. Still alienated, still hostile to God, still doing evil. And we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ. 
Some of us have moved on to verse 23, where the life that we lived before, as bad as it was, is a memory. And the new life that we enjoy of reconciliation with God is our reality. But we only have reconciliation with God if one very important thing is true. That we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. In what God did for us in sending Christ to the cross for our sins and raised, raising him from the dead. And we hold fast. Embracing that message into our hearts, receiving forgiveness from God through Christ's death. And resurrection is what changes our life from hostility to peace, from rebellious sinners to people made holy and enabled to approach God because we are above reproach in his sight. So wherever you are, make sure that you have experienced the reality of verse 22. Because it's vitally important, not just for your life today, but for eternity. For billions upon billions of uncountable years, it will remain the most important thing about human life is where you stand with God. Second thing is this. As we consider these verses, we need to rejoice in the glory of the good news. Rejoice in the glory of the good news. We are living, men and women, I don't know about it at your house, but in my, at my house, we have to limit strictly the amount of news that we consume. Because it seems like for the last month and a half, it has been a steady stream of unrelenting bad news. And if I continue to watch that and, and watch the unemployment uh, ticker go crazy. Now 26 million people are out of work. And, and, and watch the number of cases reported in our state skyrocketing. Uh, you know, over 35,000 in Illinois now, supposedly. And, and almost a million in the United States of America. As I watch that and continue to take in press conferences and, and news reports and chirons and all of that, I struggle to not get depressed and discouraged. I struggle. And I know many of you too do as well, especially if this has touched you personally and you're one of the people who's waiting on a surgery perhaps because the hospital's not yet open for the kind of surgery that you need. Or, or if you have lost your job because your company was forced to shut down because it was deemed non-essential. Bad news can just be overwhelming. But let me say this. And let me say this as loudly and clearly as I can. That there is one piece of good news that eternally and on every single day overwhelms all the bad news in the world. And it is this. That God in his grace 
loves us with an everlasting love, has sent his son to take away the penalty of our sin, to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between us and him through the blood of his son, and he has raised us to new life. And one day we will experience with our eyes wide open the end of death, the end of disease, the end of economic collapse, the end of every trauma and calamity that there is in the world. We will experience the end of warfare. We will experience the end of anything other than happy tears. We will experience the end of all things in this world that are broken. And this world, in its present form, will pass away. The earth and all of its works and all of the evil done to every person on the globe will come to an end. And there will be a new creation, the home of righteousness. And none of that stuff will be anything other than a memory. And that day is coming. Because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, all of this stuff will be in the past. The glory of heaven will be so great as to overwhelm whatever suffering we currently endure. And and that reality, that truth, that deep heart-pumping Truth ought to give us hope and joy in the present. There's a book that I have not read, but I love the title. Written by a gal named Barbara Johnson. And the title is Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. I just think that's a magnificent title. But that's what the gospel does for us. That's what the good news of God's reconciliation of people to himself through the blood of Jesus does. It gives us splashes of joy in the cesspool of life that we're swimming in right now. And as we go through these things together, knowing that the death toll may well be worse, knowing that the job losses may get worse, knowing that there are institutions that we love that may close and never reopen, knowing that that all of these things may happen, that it may take a decade to rebuild the economy back to where it was four months ago. Knowing all of that, we know this, that God loves me. That he sent his son to die for me. That he made peace with me. And he is taking me home. And his grace is sufficient to carry me from broken sinner to holy, blameless, and above reproach. Member of his family for all eternity. And men and women, I don't know if you've got anything better than that. But that's the best there is. That's the best news, and it overwhelms the bad news no matter what day you're on. And I'm grateful for it. And you should be too. And we should rejoice in it. And we should allow that truth to sing to us. 
John Piper uses this phrase. He says, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I know exactly what he means. That these truths need to be repeated to yourself every day. At least as often as you scroll on Facebook. At least as often as you turn on the news and watch the Chiron go by. You're going to need to remember these truths. That God loves you. That he sent his son for you. That he has made peace with you. That he is making you holy and he is carrying you home. With that in mind, let's rejoice in the Lord together. Let's pray and then let's sing some more about the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ, the Savior. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, that your everlasting arms carry us through every circumstance. That because of your great love for us, that you sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That you made peace with us. You took the penalty of our sin away. That you disarmed the devil and his fear of death that he uses to keep men in slavery. Father, that you overcame all the rulers and authorities in this world and held them up to open shame in the triumph of your son over sin and death and hell. And that you are carrying your people, the ones who love you for what you have done for them through Jesus Christ. You are carrying them all from the being sinners to being saints being members of your family who dwell with you in, an, in the kingdom of light for all eternity. And Father, until that day comes, we pray that we would rejoice in these things, that we would seek for joy not in good news from the TV, but in good news from your word which overwhelms all the bad news that we see day to day. Father, help us preach these things to our hearts by your Holy Spirit until our heart sings with the reality of them. Father, we pray in Jesus' name and by your Holy Spirit's power. Amen. Mm-hmm.